want to go live on video but are a bit unsure where to start? Or maybe you already go live a lot but you are scared to sell. Download for free the Live Authentic Storytelling Guide. Six steps to infuse storytelling into your live videos. You'll get practical structure to help you convert your audience from raving fans to loyal customers. Go to www.livestorytellingguide.com and get your free guide today. Guess who's going on vacation, y'all? Yep, yours truly. After two years, more than two, really, when you think of how long COVID has been, finally getting a chance to get away. And because I'm getting away, we're going to pause production of the podcast for a few weeks. And so you're going to get summer fun some of the best of the Nick Dima show that my team and I have picked out ones that we know that you've loved that you can take and listen to again and get more and more and more out of. So welcome to the best of the Nick Dima show. My friend Julia Cameron is credited with starting a movement in 1992 that brought creativity into the mainstream conversation. It brought it to the arts in business and even in everyday life. She's the best-selling author of more than 40 books. 40 books. She's also a poet, a songwriter, a filmmaker, a playwright. And her best-selling book, The Artist Way, has been translated into 40 languages and sold over 5 million copies to date. In this episode, we discuss Julia's life from small-town girl to Rolling Stone journalist to Hollywood writer and her wildly successful The Artist Way. You'll learn about morning pages, artist dates, and why having an abundance mindset will make your business soar. This is the Creative Soulpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Demas. Let's go. Okay, friends, I am so excited, so, so excited to have my dear friend, Julia Cameron, with us today. Now, you all know her from The Artist Way, of course, of course, of course. And there's a whole new generation of people that are discovering The Artist Way. And that's a big part of why I wanted to have Julia on today. But more than that, I wanted to have her on because she's just a really a dear friend and a huge influence to so many, including myself in my art. She's a collaborator of mine and just a great, great human being. So, Julia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm so excited that you're doing this, Nick. I think it's a wonderful adventure. And that is the truth. It's an adventure. It's um, a process of learning and growing and opening yourself up to all kinds of new and fun and exciting ways of telling stories, ultimately. And you are the master storyteller. You are such a beautiful, prolific writer. But I want to back up a bit if you don't mind, because, you know, I think that sometimes people only know the end. They don't know what it took to get there. And I want to back up to sort of the beginning of your artist journey, your artist way journey beyond before the artist way. You grew up outside of Chicago, am I right? That's right, in Libertyville, Illinois, Adlai Stevenson's hometown. Oh, wow, really? Marlon Brando's hometown. How far outside of Chicago is that? About 35 miles. Okay. And all of those famous people came from that. Is it a big town or a small town? It sounds small. It was very small. When I was growing up, it was 7,000 people. And what was it like growing up in a small town like that? Well, it was wonderful. We lived actually outside of town. 
in a big yellow house in the woods. Uh, and it was a walk to get to town. And you had to cross a river and a bridge. Uh, and then there you were. Uh, and I didn't have the concept that it was a small town uh, because we had the nuns telling us that they, we were the center of the universe. Well, you were the center of your own universe, right? Yes. <laughs> and you grew up with parents that were both writers. Is that right? Yes. My father and my mother both wrote and they both believed in writing and they both encouraged writing. So I didn't grow up with an idea that writing was something foreign. I grew up with an idea that writing was something useful. Mm, that is really amazing to have had parents that fostered your creativity, that encouraged it. Was it the kind of household that there were, there were always creative projects happening? Yes, exactly. Um, we had a dining room table that was always full of craft projects. We had two pianos. One was upstairs for the proper lessons, and one was down in the basement for honky-tonk. Uh, and my sisters were sketch artists. Uh, so I grew up with two brothers who are musicians, professional musicians, a sister who's a painter, a, portrait, a wonderful portrait artist, two sisters who are writers, uh, and an older sister who was a writer and a composer. Wow. Now that I didn't, I didn't realize. So... What is that, seven, six, seven. seven? Seven kids. That sounds like a rambunctious household. It was very rambunctious. But very fun, it sounds like. Well, my mother, went in her 50s, took belly dancing lessons. <laughs> I want to be your mom. <laughs> That's, that sounds so fun. She kept a little poem up by the um, kitchen sink that said, if your nose is down to the grindstone rough, and you hold it down there long enough, soon you'll say there's no such thing as brooks that babble and birds that sing. Three things will all the world compose, just you, the grindstone, and your darned old nose. So she was good-humored. Yes, she was. Well, that, that, that explains where you got your sense of humor. Well, I hope so. So your dad, though, was... A copywriter, am I correct? He was an, an account executive for Dial Soap for many, many years. So I grew up thinking that was the only soap. <laughs> it's the only one you had in your household, I'm sure. Yes. As your creativity was encouraged and, and there were seven of you, how did your writing grow over time? Or were there mentors that came into play? Were there people that helped you? How did you evolve as a writer and an artist? Well, I started writing in sixth grade because I fell in love with a boy named Peter Mundy, and I wanted him to love me. So I started writing short stories and scooting them across the desk to him. It turns out he fell in love with Peggy Conroy instead, and later told me that I terrified him. But it was the beginning of my writing. Uh, and then when I got to high school, I had a nun, Sister Julia Claire Green, who believed in my writing uh, and encouraged me. And in college, I had Dr. Slakey, who encouraged me and had me co-teach with him. So I was always lucky to have inspirational mentors. Now, the nun thing keeps coming up. So clearly you were raised Catholic. Yes. Did that Catholicism 
inform your spiritual journey and your spiritual life? Has it always been a part of it? Or did it sort of find its own way as you matured? Well, what happened was that I began to have trouble with the church. Mm. And I I would say that started when I was about 12. And I stopped believing many of the things they told us. And I didn't believe in hell. I didn't believe in mortal sin. Uh, I didn't believe in the great indignity of an authoritarian God. And I started reading when I was about in my freshman year in high school. I was reading Teilhard de Chardin and great mentors and mystics. And I was looking for a path of spirituality that was kind. Uh, And I didn't experience that in Catholicism. I, I think so many people can relate to that experience. I know that I did. You know, I think around, it was about the same time, 12 or 13, when the the worldview didn't match my worldview suddenly. And I knew that I needed something different. And so then I began to explore. So you went to Georgetown. Yes. That was university for you. And you said, was that where that mentor was or was that somewhere different? I was at Georgetown and I was mentored by Dr. Slakey, Mm -hmm. by a poet named Roland Flint, who was a wonderful poet and encouraged my poetry. I don't think that many people know what a brilliant poet you are, that that is one of your true, true gifts, is your use of poetry and language in a way that is unique to you. Was that a voice that you developed, or was it just something that came very natural to you? I both developed it, and it was natural. I started writing poetry full-time when I was 18 under the guidance of Roland Flint, Uh, And I found myself able to express in poetry things that I couldn't express in prose. So I have a website now, juliacameronlive.com, which has a section on it, poetry. So I, I never have tried to publish my poetry, but I put it on the website for people to share. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And why have you not published it? Is it just not felt right or... I I think I was just worrying about something I tell people not to worry about. <laughs> you know, I say, don't worry about the odds. But I found myself thinking uh, I couldn't bear to have my poetry rejected. Mm. So I didn't put it up for scrutiny. I just kept writing. Well, and there's something really beautiful about that. Just keep going. Just keep writing. And that sometimes our art doesn't necessarily need to be for others. Sometimes it's for us, and that's okay. Yes, I think so. I think that the poetry gave me a voice uh, and a depth, uh, and I'm hoping people will go racing off to the website uh, and say, oh, indeed, she is a poet. Well, they definitely will. We'll make sure to put that in the show notes so that people can click right on it and hop on over there because it is beautiful work. Thank you. It truly is. So what was it like at Georgetown? In, this was the 60s, right? This had to have been the 60s. What was it like at Georgetown in the 60s? Well, women were not allowed to sit on the lawn. Women were not allowed to wear slacks. Uh, women were expected to wear skirts. Women were expected to make it home without committing what was called PDA, 
public displays of affection. <laughs> so if your boyfriend walked you back to the dormitory, he'd better not kiss you goodnight. Wow. It was pretty strict. Yeah, that's very strict. And were you encouraged as a female to be a writer at that time? Or was it sort of, eh, that's not really what women do? It was, ah, eh, that's not really what women do. Um, when I said I wanted to be a writer, they said, oh, Julia, you will be a wife and a mother, and writing is something that men do. So abandon your dream. What within you knew that they were wrong? What made you say, I'm not abandoning this dream, and I'm going to forge on? I had a temper, and uh, I, I still have a temper. <laughs> I just thought, oh, to hell with you. I'm going to do what I believe in. I, and so I kept writing, uh, and I began to be published, uh, and I saw it as a revenge upon Georgetown. <laughs> And what was the first thing that got published? What was the first, was it an article? Was it a, what was it? What was the first thing? Well, I thought it was poetry, but recently my friend Gerard Hackett, who I've been friends with for 54 years, said, oh no, you wrote an article about dress codes for women. <laughs> so I was pretty feisty. Yeah, it sounds like it. Sounds like, well, and I think that one, in order to have this sort of longevity that you've had, I mean, you've been writing for how many years now professionally, you have to have a feistiness. You have well, to have a resilience. I started writing full-time at 18, and now I'm 72. So that's quite a span of years. Uh, and I, I do believe that I wrote, I want to say for myself alone, and that that gave me the courage to keep going. I would write something, uh, and if it happened to get published, that would be great. But if it didn't happen to get published, I would still have had the thrill of having written it. Mm. That's really amazing. And I think such good advice for young writers is just to keep, and young artists of, and entrepreneurs of any kind, just keep going. Yes. Keep doing, and keep doing it, like we said earlier, for yourself. And eventually, somebody will likely have a similar feeling or thought. They'll want to, they'll connect with it in some form or fashion. So what happened after Georgetown? Oh, the Washington Post. I had a phone call from a guy I went to high school with who said, would you like to work for the Washington Post? And I said, no. <laughs> and he said, well, they pay you $67 a week, uh, and you'll only have to work three hours a day. And I thought, well, that sounds reasonable. So I went to work at the Post sorting mail and putting letters in little slots for the reporters. And one day, the man who ran our department, which was called the style section, looked at me and he said, Julia, you look depressed. And I said, well, I just typed tomorrow's story, uh, and it's terrible. And he said, well, if you think you can do better, and then he went out to dinner. And while he was at dinner, I wrote my first piece of journalism. And he came back and he read it and he said, I evidently owe you an apology. We'll run this on Sunday. So I started appearing regularly and it would just say by Julia Cameron. It wouldn't say lowly copied letter sorter. <laughs> so people reading it would just think, 
I was a reporter. And um, what happened was I got a phone call from Rolling Stone magazine saying, we've been reading you in the Washington Post, and we'd like you to write about Watergate. Whoa. Now that had to have been a significant, I mean, that was, that Rolling Stone was everything during Watergate. That had to have been a phenomenal time in your life and a very exciting one. Well, I wrote a piece called Life Without Father, which was about E. Howard Hunt's children, and it became a cause celebre. It was written up in Time magazine. They said Rolling Stone is finally getting serious, and I got a lot of attention paid to me for that piece. And I got a phone call from William F. Buckley telling me I was a terrible person for writing that piece. Which is how you know it was good. <laughs> so that was how I knew it was good. Yeah. That launched a literary career for me. I started writing for The Village Voice, New York, New West. I was hot. Sounds like it. During that time, did you feel like your voice was maturing or did you feel like your artist was evolving or were you feeling stifled that you were a reporter? Well, I was feeling stifled to be a reporter, although I was having great success with it. I was also writing short stories, which I regarded as my true art form. Mm. And um, I was assigned to write about Martin Scorsese. And I said, Martin who? (laughs) They said, trust us, write about this man. So I went to New York to meet him. I met him. And I thought, oh, my God, I've met the man I'm going to marry. Uh, And I called my mother and said, I've met the man I'm going to marry. And she said, does he know that? (laughs) And he gave me a script of Taxi Driver to read, and parts of it didn't work. And I just blithely, arrogantly, festively rewrote sections of the script uh, and handed it back to him and said, what you had didn't work, and this does work. Uh, And he shot my scenes. And married me. So you were right. Yeah. You were right. You, you know, I mean, you, you saw him. What was it about him that made you go, he's the one. I know I'm going to marry him. He had tremendous energy and great good humor. And I connected to the energy. Yeah. I felt like, oh, I've met a peer. I mean, you have to remember Martin wasn't famous yet. Okay. He was just on his way up. And um, I was on my way up. So... We sort of met as peers. I love that. I, I love that that story because I, too, you know, Michael, my partner, I walked into a bar to meet him for the first time, and I looked at him, and I knew. I, I just knew immediately. It was a, and you know, they, they say love at first sight. Or it wasn't, it didn't, it wasn't like the butterflies and the, the sparkles, but there was this energy about him that I just sensed that this was going to be a very significant relationship in my life. I just knew immediately. So I can completely relate to that story with you and Martin Scorsese. So then you obviously went to Hollywood. Went to Hollywood, worked on New York, New York, um, worked on Taxi Driver, and became a Hollywood screenwriter. It never occurred to me that there was a form of writing that I couldn't do. So I just did it. Do you think that relates back to your childhood of being so encouraged with your writing and with your creativity that just felt like, of course I can. Well, my parents never said to me, 
Oh, sweetheart, don't you think you might need something to fall back on? They just said, do it. And so we did it. That is so fortunate. Yeah. Because that's not the typical story, right? You hear from all the time. And, and my, my background is similar in that my parents encouraged me. They didn't understand it. My parents were not artists. They weren't creative in that way. But they never once said to me, stop, right. get a real job. You know, it wasn't really about that for them. They just wanted me to be happy and they wanted me to be productive. I think in their mind, they wanted me to get a real job. <laughs> but they didn't flat out say that to me, really, you know, in that way. So how was the Hollywood experience? Was it exciting? It had to have been exciting. You must have been surrounded by really interesting people. What was it like for you? It was exciting. I would go to parties and be standing next to Barbara Streisand. Marty's career was taking off, uh, and he became hot, and we became a hot couple, uh, and we got invited everywhere, and that was fun and exciting. But Hollywood was also uh, a world I did not understand. I had been brought up in the Midwest by Midwesterners who were married to each other and in love with each other and told each other stories and jokes. Uh -huh. uh, and then here I was in Hollywood. And what happened is that Marty had an affair with Liza Minnelli. And Liza Minnelli was supposedly my closest girlfriend at the time. And it was very painful. And I thought, oh, I have to get divorced. Because in my background, you didn't have affairs, and it was grounds for divorce. It never occurred to me that I could wait it out and see what happened. Mm. So I left him. I had a 16-month-old daughter, and um, I moved back down the hill. from. We lived up on Mulholland Drive, which overlooked the city quite literally. Yeah. And uh, I moved back down to Hollywood Boulevard, and I got a phone call from Rolling Stone saying, well, we were going to tell you you had to get divorced if you wanted to write for us, but you seem to be doing that, so would you like to write for us again? So I went back to my career as a journalist. I became a columnist for the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, and uh, I also continued a screenwriting career. Well, you were a single mom then, raising your daughter, Dominica, who I know and who I absolutely adore and love, to be perfectly honest. And so you clearly did an amazing job raising her. Well, this is when my Midwestern upbringing kicked in, and I found myself wanting to be a hands-on mother, wanting to raise Dominica with a happy value system. Uh, and I found myself at odds with what I perceived as the Hollywood value system. Mm. So um, Dominica and I moved to New York. Which was probably a great idea to have some sense of normalcy for Dominica and for you. I assume that when you go from being a super couple to no longer being the it couple, that it's got to be difficult. It's got to be difficult to stay in that town and, and be a be around it? Well, I think if I had stayed in Hollywood, I would have been the former Mrs. Martin Scorsese mm -hmm. instead of Julia Cameron, the writer. Uh, and I moved to New York to be Julia Cameron, the writer, uh, and uh, it worked out. <laughs> I should say so. It definitely worked out. So you're back writing for Rolling Stone. And are you working for other magazines as well? Or is it wasn't exclusively that you're, or you're back at Rolling Stone? 
I was writing for other magazines as well. I was writing for Mademoiselle. I was writing for Vogue. I was writing for, um, I think I wrote for Ladies Home Journal once. I was taking my experience as a single mother and putting it into essays. Uh, and I was selling to the women's magazines. And um, it wasn't the idea of glamour. It was not your idea of glamour? Right. When did, because you write, not only do you write poetry and you've written, obviously, for magazines and newspapers, but you've written plays and musicals, which is really how you and I connected. Yes. Our mutual friend, Emma, set us up on a blind date, and it was kismet. And we were meant to work together, and we developed a play together. When did the writing of plays and musicals happen for you? Was that before or after The Artist's Way? During. 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 I wrote The Artist's Way starting, oh, maybe 1982. I started to have essays about creativity. And uh, I found myself drawn to theater. And I wrote plays. Uh, and I found myself thinking, oh, I want to be an artist. And that means I need to be brave enough to write plays, brave enough to put them up. I was still writing movies. And uh, I just expanded as an artist. So in some ways you were writing the book for yourself. I think of it as a manifesto. And when I said before that I have a temper, I felt artists were not being treated right. And I thought, I'll just do something about that. I love that. Now, you said you started in 82, but it wasn't published until 92. Is that correct? Right. I think that's really interesting for people to hear, that it wasn't just an overnight <laughs> you wrote it in, a, in a six months or a year, and then it was published, and then boom. Can you talk about the process from the beginning in 1982 and what you did along the way before it was published in 92, or 82 to 92? Well, I was thinking that I was writing a book for 10 people. I thought, I'm writing this book for me and my blocked friends. I know how to unblock people, uh, and I'll just write some essays, and they'll be helped. I didn't anticipate 5 million people buying the book. I anticipated maybe five people who were close friends of mine using the book. Uh, and I was teaching at the New York Feminist Art Institute, and uh, I was teaching creative unblocking. So I would learn something. I think it's important to say that my tools are the fruit of my own experience, Mm. that I learned how to unblock myself. And then I turned around and thought, I'll just teach other people. Uh, and I think that comes from being from a big family, where if you learned something, you taught it to your siblings. So I was basically teaching my siblings. And then it just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. But you also self-published it. Yes. This is the temper I get. I um, Xeroxed the book, which was the manifesto. Uh, it was called Healing the Artist Within. Uh, and uh, I Xeroxed it at a little communist bookstore. And I should give a shout out here to Mark Bryan, who became my second husband. Mark encouraged me to write the book. He said it could help a lot of people. And he believed in me and he believed in the book. The book is dedicated to him, uh, and it was a crucial thing to have what I call a believing mirror, somebody who saw my potential and saw the potential of the work. Mm. 
So he said to me, where's the book? And I said, I am the book. <laughs> and then I thought, well, he was a blocked writer at the time. So I thought, I'll just unblock him. So I would write an essay a week aimed at Mark. So he became sort of the target for the artist's way. He was the muse of sorts. Yes. I, I love that you know your, yourself well enough to know that it was this temper that was driving you. Did you know when you were writing it that you were creating a, a spiritual book or a spiritual experience for people? Well, I think I was the result of a spiritual experience. I got sober in 1978, uh, and they told me, if you want to stay sober, you have to believe in a higher power of some form. And I said, well, I believe in a line from Dylan Thomas, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. That creative energy is what I can believe in. So they said, well, why don't you let that right through you? And I said, well, what if it doesn't want to? <laughs> and they said, well, just try it. So I started trying to let the creative energy right through me. And inevitably, because it was a spiritual energy, I found myself writing spiritual work. That's beautiful. And did you notice a change in the work from pre-sobriety to post-sobriety? Absolutely. I think before I got sober, I was a, a hot young writer and I wanted to be considered brilliant. So I was always trying to make my work more and more clever and um, more and more showy. When I got sober, I started writing from a spirit of service. How can this be useful? And what happened was that my career and my prose straightened out uh, and um, my work became much more powerful. Not to mention your life, I'm sure, straightened out. Absolutely. Yeah, the the surrender that it takes to be sober and to be a writer, it's got to be a sort of a parallel path of sorts. So you self-published it, and how then did you get the attention of a publisher? Well, this is a, a Mark Bryan story. He went to a bookstore, and the bookstore owner said, does Julia have an agent? And Mark said, uh, no. And the bookstore owner said, well, an agent just stopped in here and left me a card. And Mark said, I'll take that card. So he took the card, and um, I actually did have an agent. And the agent said to me, your work is too close to Natalie Goldberg's work. We represent Natalie. We can't represent you. And this had taken them a year to figure out. Uh, and I said to them, I actually don't think Natalie would think my work was too close to hers, she'd probably be supportive. And they said, well, be that as it may, we can't represent you. So I went home and I told Mark, they can't represent me. They say I'm too much like Natalie. Uh, and um, he said, call this number and handed me the card. And I said, I can't. And he said, I will. <laughs> so he called the agent, got her on the phone and talked her into looking at the book. She said, every year at Christmas, I get a hot book. Maybe this year it's yours. So she read the book, and then she called me up, and she said, I think I should take it to Jeremy Tarcher. And she did, and Jeremy published it. Amazing. Now, did they have the vision for the book of what it became 
I mean, did they know that or what kind of vision did they have for it? I don't think anybody knew it was going to become a movement and become a household name. I think they thought they were publishing a tiny little California book. California, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What happened was, of course, New York got a hold of the book. Hmm. Uh, and it, it had its earliest successes in New York. Really? Yes. Well, that makes sense when you really think about it. And all the artists in New York and the, the, the creative circles that, that are in New York. That's, you know, you and I have had conversations about how New York, how, well, we, I think we both have a love-hate relationship with New York. I shouldn't speak for you. I have a love-hate relationship with New York, Julia. But one of the beautiful things about New York is the amazing circles of creative people there. And so that's not really surprising to me that they have, that they took to the book. What happened was the book sold 100,000 books, and then they said, oh, maybe we should be paying some attention. After it took 100,000 before they really began to pay attention. That's super interesting. Before they began reprinting big enough numbers. Yeah. And then how did it snowball? Like, like, how does that happen? Do you even know? Is it just, it just sort of? Well, I was brought up Catholic. It was a spiritual book, and the nuns and the Creation Spirituality Network got a hold of the book, and the Jungians, uh, and they all found something in the book that spoke to them, and that's how it took off. Wow. Wow. I don't, I, I've never heard that before. That's really amazing. And I, again, it's interesting that, that the nuns played a part in your life, yes. this reoccurring theme of the nuns. I love that. Yes, it was a place called Wisdom House, uh, and they started teaching it. Uh, and that was my first experience with someone else teaching the book. Uh, and, of course, now many people have taught the book. Yeah, and you're very, you're very open about allowing people to teach the book. Yes. You know, you have not said you must be certified or you must go through this training or that training. Why is that? Why is it that you felt that anybody can can take the tools and teach them? I think I have a faith in people's native genius. Uh, and I think I felt the book would stand up to being taught by a wide variety of people. Uh, and I was approached to franchise the book, like Est. Uh, and I said, no, I think it should be free. Mm. Uh, so I made the book free. You could teach it for free. What in a beautiful abundance mindset that you have, that you just instinctively, intuitively knew that you would receive abundance and that other people would receive the gifts of the book without needing it to be franchised or, or contained, really. Well, I didn't want to spend my life babysitting who was teaching it right. Mm. I wanted to believe people will know how to teach it right. The book speaks for itself. And it does. I mean, the book is now how many years old? 25? 27. I think. 27 published, plus the 10 before that. So really, we're, you're, we're looking at a 37-year journey with this book. And what, what tickles me, so it must tickle you because it tickles me as your friend, is to watch a young person who maybe wasn't even born when the book came out, discover it, and to see them go through the, the, the tools and to see how they work. 
no matter what the generation, no matter what t- what's going on in the world, these tools work because they're so universal. Does it tickle you the way it does me? <laughs> well, I think it's pretty wonderful. Yeah. I, I run into people who say, oh, I got your book in 1992. I worked it. And now I've written 13 movies. Mm. So. Yeah, I mean, I can say to you that, that and I think I've said this to you before, that the book very much inspired me as an artist. And I don't think that I would have expanded and tried so many different things had I not read and practiced the artist way and morning pages. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of a morning page? Aha. Okay. What is a morning page? All right, morning pages are three pages of longhand morning writing about absolutely anything. Uh, and so you are poking a little whisk broom into the corners of your life and bringing all the debris into the middle of the room where you can deal with it. Uh, and what it is, is it may say you forgot to call your sister back. The car has a funny knock in it. You didn't buy kitty litter, you know, sort of from the, the petty to the profound. Uh, And what they do uh, is they train you to expand. You're writing morning pages and they say, why don't you try? And this is the experience you had. And you say, I couldn't do that. And then you keep writing and they say, why don't you try? And you think, I don't think I could do that. And then you keep writing and they say, why don't you try? And you go, all right, I'll try it. All right already. Morning pages are a wonderful, tough love friend. They are a nag, uh, and they will nag you into expansion. Oh, that is really good. They'll nag you into expansion because that is dead on. Yeah, I really like that. And one of the other tools is the artist date. What is an artist date? Well, it's what it sounds like. It's an artist date. It's a once a week, solo, festive expedition to do something that enchants or interests you. So you're aiming at your artist, which is essentially, we're all sort of sick of talking about the inner child, but the part of you that creates is youthful. So uh, an artist date shouldn't be something serious. It should be something that's really fun. Uh, And I find when I teach, if I assign the work of morning pages, I say, I have a tool, it's a nightmare. You have to wake up 45 minutes early. You have to put yourself to the page. People will say, oh, I get it, working on our creativity. Uh But then if you say, now, I want you to play once a week. They're like, play? What does play have to do with working on our creativity? Uh, And I try to explain to them that when you make a piece of art, you're dipping into an inner well of images. And as you create, you're fishing from the well. And once a week, you take an artist date and you're replenishing the images in the well so that when you go to create again, there'll be plenty of images. The artist date really opened me, as I'm sure it has many people, to experimentation Mm -hmm. and to allow myself to be bad at something. And for that, I am so very grateful. So thank you for that. Well, I think when you people will say to me, Julia, aren't you afraid you're unblocking a lot of bad art? <laughs> and I will say, 
actually, I have had the opposite experience that many of the people that are on block are better artists than well-known artists. They have just lacked the courage uh, and perhaps the parental support that I had yeah. to go forward. Now, you are one of the other things that I respect about you is that you're a brilliant businesswoman as well. Thank you. You're a wonderful entrepreneur that you have taken the artist way and you've created an entire industry for yourself. Not only is there the artist way, but there are many different books that have followed. Can you talk a little bit about the follow-up of those books and what they have meant to you to then expand yourself as an artist? Well, I find that I ask myself, what should I write next? Uh, and I get an answer. And sometimes the answers don't look particularly um, lucrative, but they just feel like this is your guidance. This is what you should write next. Like right now, I'm writing a book on guidance. Uh, and uh, I don't know that it will strike people as a bestseller, but it will strike me as something that I needed to say. So I've written 40 books. That's about a book a year ever since I got sober. That's incredible. Well, people ask me, how do you do it? And I say, I listen. Mm -hmm. And they think I'm being facetious. But I'm not. I yeah. I listen for what comes next, and I write it out. Uh, and I write my books on spec. Uh, I don't have deals for them ahead of time. I just write what seems to call to me to write. And that calling, is it a voice that you hear, or is it something that you feel? You know, it, it shows itself differently for different people. What is it for you? Well, I think it comes down to writing. Mm -hmm. I write morning pages, and they make suggestions. Mm. And I, of course, rebel at the suggestions, and they, they persist, and then I yield. Uh, and I find myself writing. I wrote a play during COVID, and um, I was writing my morning pages, and they said, you're ready to start a new project. And I said, what? And they said, start with birds. So I started with an image of birds with the character saying, aren't they lovely? And that became a new play. Hmm. I, I love that you it, use your tool. And it sounds to me as a teacher of meditation, that it's a meditation of sorts. Well, I always think I'm doing it wrong. I'm not sitting silently and quietly. I'm sitting there doing something. But I think it's a valid form of meditation and that what you're doing with morning pages is you're writing down your cloud thoughts, which we're familiar with from meditation, something that just comes floating through your consciousness, except you're putting it on the page. It sounds to me like a moving meditation, and there's no one right or wrong way to meditate, that it is the act of, of being and it doing first and being, that that's the state where one to reach a state of being. And the morning pages for you for many of us, take us to a state of being. And in that state of being is when all of this brilliant juiciness, what I call the nectar, comes through. Thank you. I sometimes feel guilty because I've sentenced people to three pages a day. <laughs> <laughs> young people, young artists, I know I have, you know, having taught with you now, as well as uh, worked on a play with you, 
I've been able to witness young people come up to you, young and old, all ages ultimately come up to you and ask you for advice. What advice do you have for any young artist or entrepreneur out there that is just beginning? Well, see, now this is where I sound like a fanatic because what I say is write morning pages. And if you write morning pages, you will be led. And led to where you are meant to be, right? Yes. There's no one way or one uh, path, per se, that the path will you'll be led to the path that's right for you. Yes, I believe that. Yeah. What is your writing process like now? Has it changed over the years because of the morning pages? Is it, or has it morphed? Well, I get up in the morning and I write morning pages and I have my friend Emma Lively who introduced you and me. Uh, and Emma always says to me, did you write your pages? If I sound a little bit crabby. <laughs> uh, and uh, she says she can always tell if I've got my pages done yet. So I write my morning pages every day. Uh, and then I walk the dog visit with friends, make a couple phone calls, and then inevitably I get to that part of the day where it's now it is time to write. And I say to myself, I have no idea what to write. And the guidance says, you will be led. And so I listen and I write the first thing that comes to mind. And I follow that thought. Uh, and that's my writing process. When I was writing the play during COVID, I would say, I don't know what the next scene is. And the guidance would say, you don't need to know what the next scene is. <laughs> Just write. So I haven't even shown you this play yet, but it's a romantic comedy, which is quite different from the dark play that you and I worked on together. Yes, it is. I can't wait to read this new play, Julia. That's so exciting. We call it True Love. Mm, true Love. Thank you for sharing so much of your life and being so open and honest and real with us. And also for saying that you don't have the answers, that it is an unfolding and it's a, a surrender of sorts and an opening. I appreciate you. I appreciate our friendship. So thank you. You're welcome. If you enjoy this podcast, tell your friends. Please rate, write us a review, and subscribe so we can spread the word and other solopreneurs just like you can find us.